Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey, everybody. I'm so glad you're here today. I am joined by my sidekick, Tammy Verhelst. Hey, Tammy. Hi, Rob. And Tammy, as you guys know, whenever you go to Sex and Relationship Healing, our website, or you sit down for a webinar that I'm doing on In the Rooms or Sex and Relationship Healing, Tammy's often going to be there uh, helping out, helping answer questions, throw questions at me. And I can just say Tammy is an addiction expert who spent the last nearly 15 years working with Dr. Patrick Carnes and with myself and a number of experts in the field. And boy, does she know every resource, every every recovery place. Every, I mean, she just has a wealth of knowledge. And when you guys write us or you reach out to us, it's Tammy that you're going to hear. And so that's why I wanted to have her on as often as I can, because I want you to know who it is that you're talking to if you have a question that's uh, really private and you want a personal answer, whether you're looking for a therapist or a treatment center or a book or whatever it is, Tammy will guide you. So guess what? Tammy gets all of your questions. And as a result, and by the way, she turns to me the ones she doesn't have any answers for, but most of the time they're about, you know, where do I go? What do I, how do I find this, et cetera? But you guys do ask a lot of questions that sometimes I think are good enough and important enough to be answered in this format so that many people can get the answer to some of the questions you're asking. So I asked Tammy to come up with her list of best and newest (laughs) questions for the last few weeks. And I'm just going to sit and we're going to go through some of them to see if some of them aren't the ones, same same things that you guys are looking to have answered for yourselves. So Tammy, you want to wind up those questions, Madam Sidekick? I will. (laughs) I want to clarify though, all of these have been generalized. So if you go, oh my goodness, I reached out and she's taken my question. That is partially true, but not really. This is a combination, a culmination of many questions. So you'll feel threads of it and hopefully it resonates and you're finding an answer, but it isn't your question specifically. Right. So let, let me just clarify that. So if someone writes us and says, my husband named Joe was sleeping with prostitutes in Illinois and we live in Evanston, uh, I don't know what to do. That question is not going to get read to anybody. But the question might be something like, my spouse has been seeing prostitutes and lying to me about it. How would I handle it? Correct. So we are taking your questions and making them generalizable and useful for everybody. But know that we are going to absolutely protect your anonymity and your own experience. No one will know that it is you or anything to do with you if you've asked us a question except you. So Tammy, what do you got for us today? There's a lot. Let's start with this one. 
trying to figure out sexual preference. I and many sex addicts I know act out with the same sex. Some are straight, some are not. Some are openly gay. I would like to hear more about how to figure out sexual preference if you act out with the same sex. Well, Tammy, could you just ask the most difficult question first? I'd really appreciate that. That's my sarcasm, guys. If you ever want to know what Rob sounds like when he's being sarcastic, that's a very hard question because um, it's a very hard question because there are so many levels to it. For example, for the person who is married to a woman and acting out with men occasionally or regularly, sexually, he might be bisexual. He might truly have interest in both genders for sex, and he just doesn't want his spouse to know that he enjoys sex with a man at ever or occasionally, and so he's never told her that he has interest in both genders. It could be that he is truly a gay or homosexual man who loves you deeply as a female partner and is able to be sexual with you out of sexual with you out of that love he has for you but mainly and primarily his focus and interest is in men and so he looks at male porn he has sex with men outside your relationship and he doesn't really have a lot of history of having sex with women other than you or other women he has deeply loved or he might be the guy who has a lot of sexual trauma and abuse. And maybe he acts out all over the place sexually, but one of the things he does is act out with men. And that, if you look at the movie Shame, for example, Michael Fassbender in that movie is clearly a heterosexual man, but he escalates into homosexual behavior because it's all he can find. He's a sex addict. It will do. uh, And he just needs to get off because he's losing his mind in that moment in the movie. So, you know, I don't think there is a definitive answer for you. And I feel badly about that because I know this is something that spouses want an answer to, but this is so much of a case by case situation. And, you know, I have friends who've written about this, you know, is my husband gay or straight or, and, and honestly, I don't think that's something you can learn from a book because who your husband or your spouse is, male or female, and their relationship to their orientation, their, what attracts them and where it comes from is so individual and specific to them that you really need to sit down with them in some kind of therapy setting and go through all of it if you expect to get a real answer. However, I will say this to you, to whoever asked this question or people are asking this, you know, whether your husband's having sex with men or women, he's lying to you, having sex outside your relationship, you don't know anything about it and you're finding out about it later. That is as deep of a problem as who he's having sex with is the manipulation, the lies and the double life. Oh, and you know, actually I'll say something else about that since you got me started. If a man came into me and said, you know, I am married to a woman and I love her and I have sex with her and we have two children and I love them and I love my life, but I'm really only interested in men sexually. I never really have much of an interest in sex with women, but I love my wife and I want to be sexual with her. I guess if I wasn't with her, I might be with men, but I'm with her. You know, what do I do about it? Those are things that you guys need to talk about. I mean, that's an issue that has to be brought to the relationship and discussed. But if it's being acted out and not talked about, that is a bigger issue. I I would say to that man, by the way, I am less concerned with who you're attracted to and more concerned initially with your lying, your cheating, and your double life. Next question. Yes, ma'am. What does healthy sexuality look like? Now, the, so someone who has gone through, an, I know, I laughed when you said- Where are the simple questions? I know. You said, let's start off with the hardest one. I thought, oh, no, 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 no. This one's going to be a challenging show for you. But these are, the, honestly, these are the questions I get repeatedly. So um, for someone who is um, after an appropriate period of recovery, you know, their therapist, their sponsor, whatever has uh, said, now it's time to start dating, obviously fear and trepidation. So what, what how do they even start this? 
Well, first of all, I, do you know if this is a man or a woman? Because I think the this issues is a are, man. Okay, so healthy dating. First of all, for a sex addict, if you're just starting on the dating process, dating is something you do in a cold, brightly lit coffee shop where you and the other person have come together for an hour to meet and talk and then separate and leave separately in separate cars. If you're a sex addict, jumping into dating with romance and candles and wine and moonlight is a bad idea because we are not particularly good at discerning who's a good partner for us. We're not particularly good at discerning or learning fully about others immediately. It sometimes takes us longer. And we have a lot of dating experiences to catch up on if we've done a whole bunch of sexual acting out. So the first thing I would say to anyone who is starting out dating is lower your expectations of dating, have very clear boundaries around dating, especially related to sex. So you don't go off and have sex with someone just because you like them. I would suggest that you really know somebody at least a month or two before you are sexual with them. And sex means genitals. Sometimes people don't know, and sex addicts in particular, well, we had oral sex, but we didn't really have sex. No, you had sex. So if it isn't something, let's maybe define sex for people who are newly dating who are sex addicts. If it isn't something you do out in a public park where lots of kids are around playing, it's sex. <laughs> okay. So if it's other than kissing or holding hands, it's probably not something you should really be doing much in the first month of dating. So, but the bottom line is you have to slow down the process. Sex addicts want the immediate hit of validation, love, and I'm important, I'm special, and, and I feel better just because you want me. And that doesn't change because we move into dating relationships. It just means that we want the dating person to immediately validate love. And so I have seen people move from sex addiction to love addiction, where they'll go on a date and then they will absolutely obsess about that person and call that person. And you have to understand dating is just dating. It's just casually getting to know somebody over time. And the romance for us is a bit of a warning sign that we need to keep our guard up and be really present because while other people who are healthy get to fall into the arms of early romance and all of that, you know, moonbeams, country music songs, all that stuff, we need to take it a lot more cautiously. We can't fall into anything. We have to get the support of other people. And that's the last thing I would say about someone who's dating in recovery, whether they're a man or a woman, is that after every date, I would want to have someone in my recovery program who I'm working with, who knows my stuff, to go over the date with and say, this is what happened. This is what I said. And this is what he or she said. And, and then, you know, they get to decide, not you, whether it's a good idea to keep dating. Because if we were good at building intimacy and choosing partners, we would. We're not particularly good at it. We make a lot of mistakes because we get emotionally engaged and our intellect goes out the window. When you have other people around you who love you, who know your history, who know your stuff, and they won't let you get away with just diving into a relationship that's not good for you, then you're in, in better shape if you're trying to figure this stuff out by yourself. So now, how about a couple who has uh, been together for a while, say five to seven years, and one of them is an addict, male is an addict. They were not sexual much during his acting out period. Now he's in recovery, but fairly early recovery. And uh, the spouse is looking to re-engage in sex and it's not happening. And mm -hmm. uh, the term sexual anorexia has been thrown around, but I kind of wondered if there isn't just fear of, of this. So let's talk well, about this that. Is a, such a great question, Tammy. And I really like talking about this question. And this speaks to, I mean, the way I interpret it is what if you've been working on recovery really long and really hard and you're not acting out anymore, you've really got a good basis in recovery. Now you want to turn to your partner who has begun to trust and, and feel faith in you again and see about being sexual. And as a sex addict, you look at them and you say, well, I love them and I care about them. I'm so glad that we're coming back together. But sex <laughs> doesn't even cross our minds often 
Because you have to understand that if you're a sex addict, and this is really important to think about, if you are an active sex addict or have been an active sex addict, or even actively having affairs and lots of infidelities, or you've been actively looking at porn very regularly, you have become conditioned to a very high level of stimulation in order for you to become aroused sexually. That new woman, that cam girl, that porn object, that affair partner, that workout person who's now become your lover, those are all intensely exciting, powerfully, emotionally charged situations. And when you're with someone for 10 or 12 or 15 or 20 years, and you know every inch of their body and you know them really, really well, you know, turning to them and seeing them in the same way that you might see porn or you might see an affair partner is not really how you're going to get aroused. And this is the problem for many sex addicts is we look at our partners of long, long-term partners and we say, well, uh, you know, I'm just not horny when I look at you. This is what we say to ourselves. And here's the thing for a sex addict, male or female, to start their work, to work their way into intimate sexuality. It involves, and I love this phrase a colleague of mine said once, he said, it involves having an attitude, not of horniness, but of willingness. And I really like that because if you're a sex addict and you expect the sex you're having with your wife or your husband or your long-term partner to be anything like the sex that you had out there when you were an active sex addict, you don't understand the process. That intensity-based, disconnected sex that you or, or affairs or stuff that you had that was floating out there without a foundation, that will never feel anything like, nor should it feel anything like, sex or attraction to your partner. So If I expect as a sex addict that I'm going to come home and look at my wife or husband or whatever of 10, 20 years and say, wow, you're really hot. I can't wait till we get in bed like I did with a prostitute. That's not going to happen. And you know what? It's really best that it doesn't. And then I might conclude, well, maybe I'm just not attracted to my partner because I don't have all the rush of excitement that I had with the prostitutes, the affairs, the porn. And that's how I feel when I'm excited sexually and I don't feel that with my partner. So maybe I'm just not excited by my, by my partner. That is a wrong conclusion. What it means is you're just used to super stimulation or being incredibly excited before you allow sex to start rather than I think what healthy people do is, I'm pretty sure about this, they come together at night and they're lying in bed and they're a long-term couple and they're sharing some jokes and they're talking and then one kisses another and the other and they kiss back and then they're holding hands and then they rub each other's back and then maybe they get aroused and then they have amazing sex that feels nothing like sex with someone out on the street or an affair partner because it has so much more meaning. But the arousal will never come or will not come from, oh, this is a novel stimulation. It's not novel. It's someone you've been with for 15 years or 20 or whatever. The stimulation you feel will come out of the connection that you share. If you say as a sex addict, I'm going to get in bed and I'm going to be willing to be loving, willing to be holding, willing to be caressing, willing to be kissing, willing to be massaging, even though I'm not particularly horny. And guess what? That's how it happens. When your sexuality comes out of the connection with a person and not out of simply your visual or or emotional excitement about being with them, that's actually what loving sexuality looks like. But those of us who've been having intensity-based sex for such a long time, or affair-based sex, or porn-based sex, simply don't get that excited about being with a partner that we've been with for 10 years, or for that matter, masturbation. And so we have to approach healthy sexuality with long-term commitment in mind from a different emotional place than we did in our addiction. And if we do that, if we are willing, some amazing things can happen. How's that for an answer? 
<laughs> That's a great answer. Um, what's the difference between a sex addict and a love addict? Sex addicts, in a very kind of emotionally primitive way, I'm just going to mean that means whatever it means to you, seek out body parts and think, if I can get that body part to be with me, then I'm important, special, and powerful. So if I see the butt on that woman or the boobs on that woman or the arms on that guy or the smile that guy has or whatever it is, and I think, boy, if I can get that person with that body and that to love me, to want me to, to be with me, then I'm special, I'm important, and I'm powerful. So in that way, sex addicts objectify people's bodies, basically, and they say that object, that body, that butt, that ha that hair, that, that will make me feel better, that will f make me feel okay. And they consistently and persistently seek out sex simply to feel okay about themselves or better about themselves. So if you think about love addiction, Tammy, it's kind of like graduate school for sex addicts, meaning if I'm a love addict, I'm no longer objectifying that person's body parts, although I might find them attractive. I'm objectifying them as a whole person. I'm thinking about how how good they make me feel, how important they make me feel, how special I think they are, and how good that makes me feel that that special person, not that but that those boobs, that's body parts, but that this person wants to love me. And I get all caught up in who I want them to be, who I think they are, not really seeing them clearly, kind of throwing Christmas lights and moonbeams over them. And then unfortunately for the love addict, when the person becomes real, which is what happens when you date someone for a year or so and the romance wears off and we get to know them as real people, unfortunately for love addicts, they're often attached to the wrong person. They've often cho chosen someone who isn't a good match for them or, or is who they find themselves painfully chasing all the time or constantly having to try to recreate the romance or just simply being so disappointed that they say, screw this, and they move on to the next superficial romance. And that's simply because, well, there's two pieces to this. Love addicts will tend to romanticize and idealize that partner, not see them as who they really are. And then one of two things can actually happen at the end. One, they start to see them as a real person and then they back away because they're not interested in a real person. Real people might hurt you. Real people might let you down. Real people might abandon you and they want the fantasy. And so when that person starts to become real, once the romance wears off, they kind of run away. Other people will find themselves waking up in a relationship where they don't like the person. The person isn't good for them. It wasn't a good choice. And they'll stay <laughs> trying to make it better, make it turn into the romance they once thought they had. And so I have two kind of love addicts, you know, one who can't constantly gets into romantic intensity for six months, sort of serial monogamy, Tammy, if you will. Okay. And and then, you know, after Three months or six months, they're bored. It isn't right. They're, they say to themselves, this isn't the right person for me, and they move on. And they have a series of six-month-to-a-year relationships over and over and over again, maybe three months, maybe six months, maybe a year, but they never really get to the meat of real intimacy. And then you have the other kind of love addict who chooses the wrong person and chases that same person forever um, rather than seeing them for who they really are and moving on. That's very helpful. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love, and addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com. Or call us at 747-234-4325.
Okay, let's talk about 12-step programs. I have so many people that are asking about these. Everything from, do I have to go to these? Are they really effective? Partners have reactions of, now he's off to meetings all the time. So let's talk about the purpose of 12-step meetings, how to pick a good 12-step meeting, and what's going to be useful. Well, that's a great question, Tammy. Um, let's look at it, if you don't mind, and if I miss it, will you bring me back to it? Um, I want to talk about what it, what the 12-step programs are for the addicts first, because I think they're separate things. I think for the addicts, there is a number of reasons why, if not a 12-step program, that we absolutely need some kind of peer support. I do not believe that we heal well from sex addiction in individual therapy. And I have been doing individual therapy for almost 30 years with sex addicts. You will hear it and heal and grow in an enormous amount of ways, an enormous number of ways in individual therapy. But if in sex addiction, in addiction healing, whether it's drug addiction, alcoholism, sex addiction, it really requires a peer group. No one can make me feel better about the incredible shame I feel about some of my behavior than the person who already did some of that too. <laughs> Nobody can make me feel more hopeful that my marriage or my relationship might heal, except the person who's been doing this longer than me and their relationship is healing. So to be in a group of like-minded people who have similar problems is essential, I believe, for healing because it allows me to, A, reduce shame, because no matter how much you see or hear about sex addiction, there's always this part of us that feels, well, I'm really the ickiest, the dirtiest, the worst. I mean, nobody else really thinks. And when you hear people thinking and acting like you did and you do, there's a comfort in that. It's like, okay, I'm not the sickest guy in the world. There are other sick people out there like me and uh, I identify with them and that makes us feel better. We feel less alone. And then we need role models. You know, it isn't enough to have a guide. It's really helpful to have someone who's doing this work, who's been there before us, who is a step or two ahead of us, who can, who we can call on a Thursday night and say, my spouse is not talking to me. And what we have, what happened, happened three months ago. And it's driving me crazy. Can we talk about it? We need someone to call and say, I feel like looking at porn tonight and I don't know what to do. We need someone to call when we, you know, my wife is still yelling at me about something that happened a year ago and I just want to run away. And we don't get that in therapy. You get that in a 12-step program. You get that in a faith-based support group. You get that in a therapy group. So 12-step or not, coming together with like-minded peers who have similar issues and similar goals of healing is essential. Whether that happens in a 12-step meeting or a faith-based meeting or, or a therapy group, you know that really is up to the person and their own experience and how it's going. I don't think anybody can ever really go wrong in a 12-step meeting, but a couple of things I will say about them. If you're a woman, I would not necessarily walk into a 12-step meeting with a whole bunch of guys in it. I would probably want to go to women's only meetings because those men are going to feel uncomfortable. One of them is going to end up flirting with you. You're going to feel uncomfortable. You know, just don't do it. Find women's meetings. Those of you who have kids at home, they have meetings online <laughs> many days a week. I do a support group every week online. Uh, I do two of them, as a matter of fact. And if you sign up at sexandrelationshiphealing.com, you can get a, a, a whole listing of all of our uh, what webinars and drop-in groups and where you will find other people struggling with similar issues. Community is how we heal. And I guess I want to say this as a sort of overarching issue. Sex and love addiction are emblematic. They are symptomatic of an intimacy disorder. If I have these kinds of compulsive and addictive problems with sex, then I probably also have problems with intimacy, romantic relationships, friendships, community. I have relationship issues. And so what better way to heal those than in a group of like-minded people who are there to do the work and who are in there trying to grow, trying to learn, and are going to help me grow as a person? 
I want to um, affirm what you're saying. I think that it removes the terminal uniqueness. We, we hear that around the 12-step meetings that we are the worst, uh, that no one could love us, no one could believe us. And having a therapist or somebody else uh, say that you're fine is not really super helpful because they don't really know me. Where um, somebody else in a 12-step meeting, they've been there, done that, sometimes deeper, worse. So it's all very uh, normalizing, so to speak. So mm-hmm. removing the shame. So, so uh, there was, there's been multiple questions about boundaries. How do you establish boundaries? Like if you're a partner, what, what does establishing boundaries look like for you? I don't know if everyone understands what a boundary is. It's simply my word. It is, you are honoring my word. And I, and, and generally in situations where couples are doing a lot of fighting, where they're in a lot of pain, they're really struggling with difficult issues. Sometimes they can end up doing and saying things in the moment that they wish they hadn't done or they wish hadn't happened. So we will set a boundary before that situation might occur. So for example, I might say to you, if I if I'm the spouse of a sex addict and I and you've been coming at all kind home at all kind of crazy hours, I never knew where you were. I know what time you leave work, but you'd always have all these excuses. And now I know you were sexually acting out or having affairs. A, a typical boundary might be, you know, Mike, from now on, when you leave work, I want you to give me a ring and say you're on the way home. And then I expect you to be home on time unless I hear otherwise. That would be a boundary. You know, when we have a commitment to take the kids somewhere, I need you to be there 100% of the time. No excuses about work or other. You need to show up for our kids at the same degree that I do. That's a boundary. You know, for the next month, I don't know that I think we should be sleeping together. I want you to sleep in the guest room while we work on the heavier parts of this relationship. And, you know, maybe we can talk about sleeping together again after a month has passed. That's a boundary. So what boundaries are, are things that that each partner draws up to help themselves feel safer, more secure. So for that woman who says, I want you home at six, that's so that she, you know, when you're off work, that that's so that she can live her life without fear and anxiety about my husband's two hours late. And when he was two hours late before, he used to be out doing this and I don't know where he is. So I'm just going to assume he's out doing it again. So I'm going to set this boundary knowing that he comes home right after work. I don't have to worry that he's out there with other women. We can set boundaries around who we talk to, how we talk to them, how we talk to each other, when certain subjects are brought up and when they're not. We can draw boundaries around when we hug, when we're sexual, when we sleep together. You know, really, boundaries are simply a way for each individual person to feel safe in their relationship, considering that there's an enormous amount of stress and pain, and we want to make sure everything goes as well as we can during this time. You've shared with boundaries before too about the partner gets to set the stronger boundaries. So, so I think about um, uh, someone who brought up a, a case where the husband was still in contact with people that were connected with the affair partner. Yes. And that was a very painful thing for the wife and the husband was being dismissive of it. So to me, it feels like she gets to win in this one if you want to have that relationship back and regain trust. Well, this kind of goes, that question kind of goes back to Out of the Doghouse, which is a book about cheating. You know, it's like if I say to you, well, yes, I had an affair with my coworker's secretary, but she's going to keep working there and I'm going to keep working there and I'm going to see her several days, times a week and where she's going to be on the road when we travel. You may not like that as my spouse. You know, you don't want me running around and spending time with that woman that I had an affair with every single day. And you might say to me, if you, if we're going to stay together, you're going to have to find a new job. 
Now, I can only imagine the responses that some of the men I work with might have to that or women. But the reality is when it really comes down to it, do you want to be married to this person or do you want to be keep this job? Because you don't get to go to work every day and hurt them every day with them left in their fears and their concerns. So unless, and obviously you can't fire the secretary because that would be sexual harassment. So your only solution is to quit. And that is a strong, I mean, that is the kind of boundary. I'm not encouraging that you go quit your job, but if something you're doing on a regular basis is deeply hurting your spouse and you say, oh, well, it's, I know that I'm not acting out. I know that I'm not cheating. I know that I'm not having an affair. So they should just put up with it. That's not right thinking because your goal is to have your spouse love you and support you and feel safe with you again. Your goal as an addict is not for them to put up with things that they're uncomfortable with because it works for you, but for you to say, I'm going to do everything I can to restore their trust and keep them safe. So of course, I'm going to leave this job. Of course, I'm not going to engage with that person anymore. Of course, I'm not going to call, you know, whatever the boundary is. And let me say, Tammy, since you brought it up, that the person who is the addict gets a few boundaries too. You know, someone you asked earlier, you implied earlier that a partner doesn't like how often an addict goes out to 12-step meetings and support groups. Well, I understand spouses will say, look, you were out there three nights a week cheating and two nights a week in strip clubs, and I was watching the kids and taking care of our home, and now you're going to be out at meetings and therapy and I'm still home by myself. I understand that. I also understand and I need to imply and help partners understand that this is a broken person and they did, you know, the amount of pain you're in, that's how broken they are, that they were able to do that to you unknowingly, unconsciously, knowingly and consciously. That's how broken they are. And so if you want them to stay with you and your family, they have a lot of work to do. And if you want them to find pleasure in life, not by having affairs and sexually acting out, but in health, then you have to encourage them to go to church if they want to, to join a softball team if they want to, to go to a couple of 12-step meetings if they want to, because they have to find meaning in a life that they have basically dedicated to lying, cheating, and acting out. And now they have to find meaning and happiness in that life. And it can't only be sackcloth and ashes. And I know that partners feel like, I mean, you you can be punitive. Why should he enjoy life when he made me miserable for so long? I get that completely. And I'm sorry that that was your experience, but, but he or she who did the acting out has to learn how to enjoy their lives without acting out. They can't just pay for what they did by sort of being a servant and a, a babysitter. They actually have to show up for themselves in life and they need to show up for you. Now, does that mean that the addict gets to say, well, I want to go to three meetings a week and I'm going to go to three meetings a week? No, it could be two. It could be one live and two online. It could be, there are many ways that they can make sure to meet your needs and also take care of themselves, but that is something that they need to set some boundaries around too. Well, we talk a lot on sexandrelationshiphealing.com about, and, and in the webinars, about restoring relationships. And at the end of the day, these two people that have both been deeply hurt by addiction, we hope that they find happiness and healing. And whether it's together or apart, ultimately, that would be the goal. So we do want them to have the support in order to find healing. Yeah. And I, I, I only have great empathy and, and understanding for how you would feel like, you know, this person did this to me and I have been carrying this family or our lives for so long and now I want to break and maybe it's their turn to do some work. And I agree with you completely, but it's something you plan, you know, as a partner, I'm going to take a, a go away with a couple of other partners and have a spa weekend. You know, I'm going to go do some volunteer work at church and, and, and make myself feel better too. Now it's a trade-off. Now, you know, 
what now you know everything that's going on it's all on the table now it's everything can be discussed openly and with negotiation and boundaries tammy you know we have time maybe for one one more sneaky little question have you got anything in that question bucket of yours that just need is uh, dying to be asked well this is a little off the topics that we've been talking about but i do get the question what is edging <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, edging is masturbation for short or long periods of time where you don't allow yourself to orgasm. So this is very popular among young men who look at a lot of porn. They realize if they have an orgasm that, you know, they're going to have, they're not going to be interested in the porn for a while. Again, they're going to have to, you know, go through their refractory period. And, you know, so if they allow themselves to come close to orgasm and not actually have an orgasm, then they can sit and look at the porn or be in the sexual, sexual situation much longer without it ending. And they can have sort of a series. It's sort of like, sort of like almost being in multiple orgasm kind of thing, but not really. It's to make the experience go longer. I was just going to say, and why would they do that? And you answered it. So thank you. Well, what addict doesn't want to stay in, in, you know, what drunk doesn't want to stay drunk? What, <laughs> what, what person is an eating disorder doesn't want to make sure their freezer is full of Haagen-Dazs and what sex addict doesn't want that good feeling to just go on and on and on? Exactly. Oh, well, I guess we've run out of time. <laughs> I think we have. You know, Tammy, I just so appreciate working with you. And guys, I want you to know that Tammy is, as I said, the person who receives your calls, your letters, your emails. And that's why we do this together, because I want there to be no mystery. You know, obviously, I don't read the hundreds of uh, letters and emails that you guys send because I can't. And Tammy, you could say this for yourself, but I'll say it for you. If she ever has a question about an emotional issue, a psychological issue, uh, any of that stuff, we talk about it or our team talks about it. You don't just get a pat answer. But if, you know, if you just need a book or a website or some information, um, you know, you're, you're certain to get that and get it really quickly. Well, and I want to clarify with that even, I try to pay attention to what is being asked. So it isn't that we have just one pat answer and it's, you know, everybody gets the same answer. You do get resources like sex and relationship healing and the podcast, et cetera. But for treatment providers, I really do try to understand what it is that's needed for that particular person. And understand, guys, we're not offering therapy at Sex and Relationship Healing or doing any of that, any of that online. We're just simply uh, offering you everything for free. Podcasts, blogs, drop-in groups, support, all of it. And uh, it's our belief that that's how we will do well is by serving you. So thank you, Tammy, for being here. And thank you all. We look forward to the next podcast. Thanks, Rob. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term, effective, intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care. <laughs>